0: The title of this morning's message is Longing for More Than His Gifts, Longing for More Than His Gifts. And if you have been with us over the last uh, few weeks for June and July, you know that we've been studying the book of Judges. And after our Sunday morning study, there had been Bible study groups throughout the week, Meeting in Homes, our 242 groups, and they had been uh, fellowshipping and studying around the same scripture passages that we've been studying on Sunday morning and we are bringing that to a close today uh, with our final week of studies going on this week and um, and I hope that you have been uh, blessed and encouraged by the study it is not an encouraging book just to read on the surface but I know that the Lord has spoken to me much through it and I hope that he has for you as well this past Friday morning A couple drove to the building where they recently had closed their business, a business they had operated for many years. Uh, it was a chiropractic business. The man was the doctor, his wife was kind of the receptionist. I have a 19 year old son and a 20 year old daughter, both of them in college. They drove to this building where their business used to be, and they took the elevator up to the ninth floor. They went out the window. They committed suicide just before 6 a.m. This was on Madison Avenue in New York City, near 33rd Street. Glenn and Patricia Scarpelli had been experiencing a never-ending cycle of debt. They had created great despair in their lives. They both sat down and wrote suicide notes. And they each took their note and they folded it and put it inside a a Ziploc bag and put it in a pocket before they, they jumped so that people would be able to know who they were And um, at the top of Glenn's note, he wrote, we had a wonderful life. And maybe you don't see yourself as at that point of complete hopelessness and despair. Maybe like Glenn and Patricia, you haven't yet come fully to a place where In your mind all your worth is tied up in your bank balance and you can't seem to measure yourself except apart from your finances or or maybe you you're unable to see that your purpose in life is much more than whether you're a success or a failure in the eyes of others or maybe you haven't yet fully come to a place where you have measured all of your happiness based on whether or not you get what you want out of life. But that's where they had come. And dear one, if you are, if you are like that couple, if you f- feel that you are at that kind of a place, if you are so discouraged that there just seems to be nothing in your future that gives you hope, I have two things to say to you before, before we get into the message. First of all, I want to say to you that God knows. God knows. He knows everything that's happening to you. He knows your thoughts, and he knows your feelings. In Psalm 139, David knew what it was like to be low like that. And he writes in verse one, "O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word of my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And so he knows. You may think he doesn't know and, and he's lost touch with you and you're out of sight, but you are not. He knows. The second thing I want to say to you is that he cares. He cares. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? What's the point that he's making? They're not worth very much. Two sparrows sold for a penny. And he says, And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. There's nothing that happens to a sparrow that the father is not aware of. You and I can go outside. We're going to see birds flying around. We don't even notice them most of the time. I've got a goose that comes up in my backyard periodically, and he limps. He limps like a sparrow that falls to the ground and and can't fly anymore. He's just hobbling around on the ground. This goose limps. My father knows about that goose. I've even given him a name. The next phrase in Matthew 10, it's not on the screen, but the next phrase in Matthew 10 is he says, the very hairs in your head are numbered. You're worth much more than a sparrow. And if God knows what's going on with a sparrow and he knows the number of the hairs on your head, now I already saw a couple of you looking and saying, I don't have any hairs on my head. I saw, I saw you back there, Lindell. He turned to somebody right away. He was saying something about that. God knows the count, Lyndall. He knows the count. He knows the hairs on your head. And and he cares for you. So I just want you to know that God knows and God cares. Do not lose hope. If you're breathing, God has purpose for you. God has plans for you. And you are worth much more than than what the world says is the value of a man or a woman. Well, studying in Judges, we've seen a, a repeated and a disturbing pattern that's taken place The people of God who were supposed to go in and take the promised land are no longer listening to God. The people are forgetting God and doing their own thing. The people, in fact, are running to the things God says to run away from. And so they're in full rebellion. Has God given up on the people of God? Has God quit dealing with them? No. We've read over and over again in example after example that he is a promise-keeping God, that because he made a promise to Abraham and he made a promise to their other fathers, their forefathers, that from you I'm going to make a, a people who will bless all the nations of the world. God has not turned his back on these people. Long, long, for a long time, you and I might have turned our back much earlier, but God has not. He allows pressure caused by their own sin to come into their life. He allows that in love. When they begin to cry out to him, he hears their cry and he sends someone, a a judge, to deliver them from this pressure, from the oppression that they're experiencing. God is not giving up on his people. If there's a message in Judges, it is not that you and I would look at the men and women there and try to discern some admirable four or five qualities that we should apply to our life. If we look carefully at the Scripture in Judges, what we see is something about who God is. That God is a grace and mercy who continues to give grace and mercy to people who don't deserve grace and mercy. So as you sit here this morning, do you think you deserve grace and mercy? Maybe you've come, maybe it's the first time you've been in church in a very long time, and you say, Pastor, if you know the things I've done, you'd know I don't deserve grace and mercy. I want you to know today that you and I are studying and we are talking about God, but he is a living God and he has not given up on you. And he comes to you the same way he did with the most rebellious people you almost can read about in the Bible. He comes to you with grace and with mercy. Well, Samson is the very last judge that you read about in Judges before the story goes really dark. There are no more judges to read about in the book of Judges. Now, later on, the story seems to improve somewhat when you begin reading about Samuel. And there's a bright spot in the story of Ruth. These all occur during the same time period. But as Judges presents it, it's just a downward spiral. It gets worse and worse and worse. Judges has this story of Samson tucked in here right in the middle. And, it, and his story is around Judges chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. I want to go to the very first verse that opens up his story. Judges 13, verse 1. Listen. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, this is not a new statement for you and me, is it? We have have read this statement before, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. We saw in the very first time that it appeared that it literally means they were adding to their evil. They they were increasing their evil. They were accelerating their evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the last time this is mentioned. It's mentioned seven times. This is the seventh and final time. There's a new statement that appears in the final chapters of Judges. In fact, in Judges 17, in the very last verse of the book of Judges, here's what it says. In those days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the early part of Judges, it says they did evil in the sight of God. God's not even a concern when you come to the end of the book. People are just doing what's right in their own eyes. So in the sight of God, it's evil. But from their point of view, in their opinion, it's absolutely right. You know we live in a country where that's a prevailing philosophy? where we have thousands and thousands and millions of people that believe that they are doing absolutely the very right thing that we understand from our knowledge of Scripture, it is, in fact, something that's wrong, that's sinful. And it's the kind of world that you and I are living in. Samson's story begins with an angel of the Lord that appears to Samson. He tells his parents who have been barren, they've wanted a child, that they're going to have a son. He's going to be a Nazarite from his birth. If you go back sometime to Numbers 6 and read, you'll, you'll discover about a special group of people among the people of God who totally devoted themselves to God, sometimes for a season, sometimes for a lifetime. And they made special promises and vows. Samson was supposed to be a man completely devoted to God from the very first day he was born. That was his original purpose. That was the intent. As he grows up, he discovers he has a supernatural strength that is supposed to be used to deliver the people from the Philistines. And they've been oppressing him for 40 years. The story works out, however, that rather than being a man fully devoted to God, rather than being a man who is actively seeking to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines, what we discover is a man who's an accidental hero in fact what samson's really about is pursuing his interests his desires his wants and his passions as the story unfolds it unfolds around his relationship with three women not about the mission of god and um and so samson is someone who has great power he can control his power he can lift great things mighty things but he has no control over his passions every relationship in his life is driven by his own desire. Let's talk about the three women for a moment. Woman number one is a woman from a town called Timnah. She is a Philistine. The Bible says that Samson saw her. That's all it took. He saw her and he wanted her. He tells his mom and dad he wants her. They say, Son, he, she is not of your people. God has said, don't intermarry. Don't pursue those relationships. He says, I want her. She pleases me. What the mom and dad didn't know is that God was working through this man, Samson, who was just pursuing his selfish interests. In Judges 14, verse 4, it says, but his father and mother did not know it, that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. So Samson's over here, absolutely determined, going after what he wants. Meanwhile, God is using Samson to get what he wants. God can use anybody. Now, that's not an excuse to live any way you want to, but God can use anyone to accomplish his purpose. On his way to visit this girl through the engagement and courting process, he comes on a a young lion uh, who is in a bad mood and he kills this lion with his bare hands, says he rips it apart like a goat. On a subsequent visit with his parents to try to make the deal to get this woman for his wife, he discovers that honeybees had built a honeycomb inside the carcass of this lion, and he gets some of the honey and eats it. I don't know what you recall the Nazarite vows, but one of the things you were never supposed to do, either as a Jew or as someone who's devoted to God, like a Nazarite, was touch something that was dead, much less eat something out of it that was dead. I've been walking lately here around Wynn. Every now and then I come up on something that's been dead a while. And it's usually quite flat. And it smells terrible. And it still smells terrible. I'm telling you right now, if you put a wonderful meal on top of that thing, I'm not going to eat it. But Samson did. And without telling his parents where it came from, he gave that honey to his, his mom and dad, to his parents. And, um, and so now he has broken one of his vows. The Bible goes on, describes that part of the wedding feast, he throws this big party. And in the original Hebrew language, there's no, there's no hesitation in saying it was a big drinking party. One of the other vows of the Nazarites is you couldn't drink anything that came from a grape. Not grape juice, not wine, not alcohol, nothing that comes from a grape, no alcohol. And, um, and so it's kind of hard to believe that he didn't partake if he was throwing the party. So he's likely drinking. He tells all these guys at the party a riddle. The riddle is based on his experience with the lion getting something sweet from something that was strong and powerful. And he tells them, makes a bet with them, if you can guess what I'm talking about in this riddle, He said, I'll give you 30 guys 30 changes of clothes. Those were expensive. If you lose and I keep the riddle from you, you've got to get me 30 changes of clothes. Deal. So these guys begin working on his wife. They tell her, they look, if you don't tell us what's going to happen here, we're going to kill you and your dad. They threatened her. She began to worry Samson to death. Tell me, tell me, tell me the riddle. Tell me the riddle. Tell me the riddle. He tells her. She goes and tells the 30 men. They come to Samson. They said, we know the answer. Samson's angry. He says, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't know the answer. I'm not sure how she felt about that. So he goes to another town. He kills 30 Philistines. He takes their clothes. He brings them back, gives them to those men. He goes home mad. He comes back sometime later only to discover that his father-in-law is now his ex-father-in-law because his father-in-law took his wife and gave her in marriage to somebody else. Samson's mad again. He goes and um, in his anger, he grabs 300 foxes, ties flaming torches to their tails, and lets them run through the fields at harvest time. All the fields are burned up. Now the Philistines are mad. They come to his ex-father-in-law why is Samson mad he told him because I gave his wife to somebody else so they got mad and they killed his father-in-law and his ex-wife now she's really his ex Samson finds out that they killed his father-in-law he comes and he kills the guys that killed them are you seeing how this is going I mean this is just escalating a lot of Philistines are starting to die he goes on the run he's in hiding All these Philistines are starting to give other Israelites a hard time. 3,000 Israelites come to Samson where he's hiding and they say, Mr. Samson, would you let us tie you up and deliver you to your enemies? He said, if you promise not to kill me. And and he makes a deal. I'm not going to hurt you people. So he gets there and when he meets these Philistines, it says that the bonds just sort of melted. He tore them off. He grabs a jawbone of a donkey and he kills 1,000 Philistines. And then he prays his first prayer. Now we're going to come back to that first prayer in just a moment. So that's the woman at Timnah. And you say, there's two more women? Yeah, they are. Um, there's a woman at Gaza. He sees her. That's what the Bible says. He sees her and went into her. It turns out she's a, she's a businesswoman. She's a prostitute. And the men of the town at Gaza find out that he's there, and they surround the house. They're going to capture him. He escapes at midnight. The town gates are locked. He breaks out the gates, pulls them up by the, the posts. He carries the gates to a hillside, and he escapes. That's the woman at Gaza. There's a third woman, a woman who lived in a valley of Sarek. Her name was Delilah. She's the only woman that, that the Bible says Samson loves. The other woman, he just saw them and he wanted them. This woman, he loves. When he forges this relationship with her, they're not married. When he forges this relationship with her, a bunch of Philistine men come to Delilah and they offer her an insane amount of money to discover his secret, what makes him strong. A lot of times we think of Samson like a Hercules character, like he's all bulked up. And if he was all bulked up like a bodybuilder, everyone would know his secret. But more than likely, it was a supernatural strength. We know it was a supernatural strength because God's spirit came on him when he did these things. And so they want to know, how is it possible that this guy who looks like us could be so incredibly strong? So she asks him. He he lies to her. And when she discovers it's a lie, she's upset. He laughs. He thinks it's funny. She does it a second time. She begs, tell me your secret. Does it a third time. Begs, tell me your secret." He lies to her each time. Each time the explanations actually get closer to the truth, but they sound more incredible. And he's just having a party. But finally he can stand it no more. She says, you know, if you really love me like you say you do, you would tell me the secret of your strength. So he told her. The Bible says that while he was sleeping, she called someone, he came and shaved his head. Bible says the Spirit of God left Samson his strength was gone the very last part of his vow that he should never cut his hair had been broken and that brings us to judges chapter 16 verse 21 chapter 16 verse 21 The Bible says, then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. Do you remember Gaza? That was the second woman. Brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. The old preachers, when they would get wound up on this verse, they would say that sin blinds, sin binds, And sin grinds. I heard an old preacher just say that. Sin blinds, sin binds, and sin grinds. The story continues. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now, you think the Philistines would have been smarter than that. I would have made sure he had a haircut every day. Now, the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, listen to this carefully our God has delivered into our hands our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who has multiplied our dead. Was it their God that delivered him into their hands? Was it their God? Was it Dagon? No, it was Yahweh. It was Yahweh. Verse 25. So it happened when their hearts were were merry that they said, Call for Samson that he may perform for us. And more than likely, that was not a pretty thing. Uh, They called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, a little boy, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samuel performed. Would you pray with me? Father, for these next few moments, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would capture our attention. We pray that you would enable us to hear your voice. And Father, I am not capable in my human strength of speaking for you. And so I ask you, Father, to speak through me your truth your message for your people in this hour and i ask it in jesus name amen why did god use such a weak man now samson was strong physically but he was weak why did god use such a weak man let me give you some answers number one the gifts are always greater than the man I heard a guy named Fred Smith say that years ago. The gifts are always greater than the man. Sometimes we see somebody who's extremely gifted, spiritually gifted or or whatever, and and they can preach and they can teach and they can do different things and we admire them. and, And our assumption is because that man or that woman is greatly gifted, that they also have a greater relationship with God not so there is not a direct relationship between the gifts of God and the fruit of the Spirit the gift of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are two different things there is a transformation that God wants to accomplish in you and me and and understanding this helps us understand how God can use someone so powerfully in our life maybe a teacher a preacher or somebody like that, and then we discover five years later, ten years later, there's some moral failure in their life, and we wonder, how could God have used that person so powerfully? Well, the answer is simple. The gifts are always greater than the man. What God does through you is no indication of where you are in your relationship with him. There's a second thing we need to see. Why does God use such a weak man? Number two, God always does his greatest work through our human weakness. God shows himself through our weakness, not not through our strength. The Apostle Paul perhaps gave the best insight on this in 2 Corinthians 12, where he was describing a time in his life where he had some physical malady. We don't know exactly what it is, a thorn in the flesh. and He prayed three times, God, would you take this away from me? God didn't do it, but God did speak to him, which is an answer to prayer, by the way. God did speak to him. And, and what Paul came to understand is that, is that when he's going through a tough time, when he is physically weak, when he is not a hundred percent, that it's at those moments when God's power, tabernacles, the Christ's power tabernacles, on top of him the most. That's what he says, literally. And he says, when, when I discovered, that when I am weak, Christ's power rests on me more fully. When I am empty of myself, when I have abandoned my dreams, when I have abandoned my plans, when I have emptied myself like Jesus emptied himself of all his rights and all his prerogatives when he came to earth, when I have emptied those things out of me and there's nothing left in me and I'm totally weak, then I'm strong. God delights to work through weak things. Number three, when God works through you, he is also at work in you. When he works through you, he's also at work in you. You see, God wanted to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. But God was also vitally interested in Samson. He cared about Samson as an individual man. And he wanted to accomplish a work in Samson. Samson broke all his vows, did not represent God the way he was supposed to represent God. He completely blew it, lost his eyesight, but there when, while he was blind, he had more understanding, I I suspect, more insight into what was going on with his eyes when he could see. And there was a transformation. There was a shift in the heart of Samson at that moment. Others may see God using you. What they don't see is what God is doing in you. Ultimately, what God wants to accomplish in your life and mine, if you're you're part of the people of God, if you're a Christian, is he wants to do what what Paul writes about in Romans 8. He wants to conform you to the image of his son. That means that the relationship that the son has with the father, he wants your relationship with the father to be like that. He wants to conform you to the image of the son. So what's the nature of that relationship? God loves the son god blesses the son the son is able to have access to the father can draw near to the father there's this wonderful intimacy that jesus has with his father and that's where the father wants to take you we sang that that last song before i got up here some people don't like that song and i can understand why they might like it other people love that song but let me tell you what that song does talk about it talks about intimacy with god and listen The Father wants you to be intimate with Him. Like Jesus was intimate with Him. He wants that. And and let me tell you something else about the Son of God. Jesus was absolutely dependent on the Father, wasn't He? Everything He said, everything He did. We studied that this past spring when we talked about experiencing God together. How the Son depended on the Father for everything. He never looked anywhere else for help. He never never had... uh, you know, secret bank account he never didn't even say he had a place to lay his head he was completely trusting the father for everything guess what the father wants to do with you he wants to conform you to the image of the son so what's he going to do he's going to bring you to a place throughout your life where increasingly you are depending on the father for everything so what is God doing with Samson He's bringing Samson to a place and he's bringing the people of God to a place all through the book of Judges. It's about how God works to create a people for himself. Not how we get a God for us, but how God gets a people for him. That's his pursuit in the book of Judges. What I want you to understand is that you have an enemy and I have an enemy that absolutely is opposing that. He does not want you to get there. He does not want us to get there. He does not want us to be the people of God. He's fighting that. And there's a, literally a war that's taking place. God is doing something in this battle. The enemy is doing something in that battle. And you need to understand the nature of that war. So here's the question I want us to cover. What is the spiritual battle raging around your relationship to God? What is this battle? And we see this in, in Samson. What is this battle that's raging around your relationship to God? Here's the first part of it. The enemy is using your thirst to keep you from becoming a man or woman of God. Your thirst. Say, Pastor, I'm not thirsty. Every person is thirsty. And the enemy wants to take that thirst that you have, soul thirst. And he wants to use it to keep you from God, to keep you from knowing him, to keep you from having a relationship with him. In the very first prayer of Samson, we see how this operates. In chapter 15, verse 18, this is after he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone. It says, then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Now Samson had just experienced his greatest victory in his life, but is he rejoicing? Is he rejoicing? No. He is whining. He is complaining. He is upset. And the first prayer of Samson was about his thirst. The victory was not enough. And what we discover when we're thirsty and we're not dealing with that thirst the way God wants us to, but we're being God, uh, the enemy's using that thirst to keep us from God, what we discover is that nothing is enough. Nothing is ever enough. For many Christians, they see their relationship to God primarily is about getting the things they need and the things they want in this life and in the next life the bulk of our praying is what we would classify as crisis praying and i think when you're in a crisis you should pray if we've learned anything from judges it's that that when things are falling apart when things are crumbling when god has allowed pressure to come into our life for whatever reason shouldn't we cry out to god absolutely But if all of our praying is Christ's praying, if the only time I pray is when I'm in trouble, when I need money, when my health is going bad, when my relationships are going south, when my marriage is breaking up, if that's the only time I pray, then I'm no different than Samson. I pray when I'm thirsty. I pray when I'm thirsty and nobody else is helping me. And I turn to God then. What happens is that people turn to God for what they want the most, but not what they need the most which is him. The enemy then was doing to Samson what he continues to do to the body of Christ today. He wants us to turn to God with our thirst, but to be directing God and saying to the Lord, the thing that's going to take care of my thirst is if you would do this or this or this or this or this or this. It never occurs to us that we're talking to the one who can quench our thirst. So the enemy wants to keep you from drawing that conclusion. He has four objectives. First, the enemy will use your thirst to erase your identity as a child of God. You know, with an identity, you can have purpose in life, You can have meaning in life. You can have a sense of worth. You can have a sense of your potential. If you know that you're a child of God and you understand what it means to be a child of God, you can have an identity that is like fuel for you, that sustains you, that encourages you, that guides you, that helps you. The enemy wants to take that away. He doesn't want you to think of yourself as a child of God. What's interesting, really interesting, is when Samson was hiding and the 3,000 Israelites came out to him And they said, Mr. Samson, would you turn yourself in? The rationale that they gave for this was, look, Samson, you don't understand. The Philistines are our rulers. And what's really significant about this story is that God sends deliverance, but nobody has been asking for it. The people didn't want to be delivered from the Philistines. Philistines weren't so bad. They had some good things going on with them. They had some good hygiene habits, they, they had a different approach to life, there, there was some prosperity associated with being governed by the Philistines, and so what was happening is that the people of God, even though they were being ruled, in one sense they were being oppressed, the great danger to them was not the oppression they were experiencing, it was being assimilated, losing their entire sense of identity as the people of God. And this was the people that the Messiah was supposed to come through. God couldn't let that happen. And so he raises up Samson. He delivers a people who aren't even asking for it. And what the enemy has been trying to do all along is keep them from knowing what it means to be a child of God. Secondly, the enemy will use your thirst to erode your devotion to God. You no know, when Samson wanted it. He went and got it. And in the process of going and getting it, he, he broke every single vow that a Nazarite makes. And so his sense of devotion to God was was like this big. It was meaningless. Just about meaningless to him. You know, the enemy will do that with you. He'll, uh, he'll lead you to believe that following Jesus means nothing more than attending church a few Sundays a year. Maybe dropping a little bit in the offering plate once in a while. And I'm so glad I trusted Jesus when I was seven at vacation Bible school. and um, And that's it. That's the extent of your devotion to God and the enemy wants you to think that 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 at that level with that frame of mind that that you can be satisfied and you won't be but he's going to use your thirst to keep carrying you away from God into other places that satisfy you uh, thirdly the enemy will use your thirst to exert control over your life to exert control over your life um, his thirst constantly got him in trouble. Uh, he saw a woman he wanted her he saw another woman he wanted her he saw a woman he loved her and and using that desire to make her happy using that desire to please her he gave away the last bit of his devotion to God which was the secret concerning his haircut and the enemy used it to take control over Samson completely now you need to understand that's what sin does that's how sin operates in you and me That's what the enemy does is he uses the desires that you have you cannot be tempted unless there are desires in you to do what you're being tempted to do james chapter 1 verse 14 he writes this but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed then when desires conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death that's how you get trapped that's how you stumble that's how you fall is when your desires are being used by the enemy to control you. Number four, the enemy will use your thirst to eliminate your real source of strength. I mean, his objective all along was to take away Samson's strength. He didn't want the people delivered from the Philistines. And so what he did was he arranged so that ultimately Samson lost everything, lost his strength, lost his eyesight. And that was his goal, was to take away his strength. The moment Samson caved, The Bible says the Spirit of God left him, and Samson was on his own. What you and I discover is that we desperately need God, and sometimes it's what happens when we discover how absolutely hopeless it is to do life without God. It's then that we discover how much we need Him. The spiritual battle raging around your relationship to God. The enemy wants to draw you away from that relationship. Secondly, God defeats the enemy by quenching your thirst with himself. If you've heard nothing else from the book of Judges, it is that we have been reading about a God who's saying to a people of God, he's saying, dear ones, I am what you're looking for. The relationship with me is what you're looking for samson is experiencing as an individual what the nation need was experiencing as a whole look at verse 28 this is samson's second prayer that's recorded only two prayers recorded in samson's life the first one was i thirst give me water the second one we read in verse 28 then samson called to the lord there he is standing in that temple hands on both pillars And he says, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. He called to the Lord. This was not a silent prayer. O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines, and he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. Now some people read this and say, well, that just sounds like the same old Samson. I mean, he's not concerned with the mission of God. He's just concerned with getting vengeance for his eyes. Strengthen me. One more time, I can get vengeance for my eyes. And just let me die and it sounds like the same old thirsty guy who just wanted what he wanted and didn't give a rip about what God wanted I would argue though that Samson like you and me is a work in progress his prayer is not the same as his last prayer let me point out the significant differences look at what he prayed first He prayed, O Lord God. And he does something that he didn't ever do before. He uses God's sacred name, Yahweh. And he calls him Lord. And so he's saying, Sovereign Lord, God of my people, the God who is mine, O Lord God. He didn't even use his name in the first prayer but this time something has shifted then he says this he says remember me this is powerful remember me see before he was thirsty for water what's he thirsty for now god It's not wrong to pray for his gifts, but you and I need more than his gifts. We need him. We need to know him, and he wants us to know him. He wants us to enjoy him, and he wants to enjoy us. Remember me. Oh God, don't forgive me. I want you to know me, and I want to know you. The point is, everyone is thirsty. The enemy wants to use your thirst to keep you as far from God as he can. God wants to use your thirst to bring you to himself and then quench your thirst. He wants to satisfy you. In Psalm 63, verse 1, the psalmist writes, "O oh God, you are my God. Early or earnestly will I seek you. My soul thirst for you. Do you recognize that soul thirst inside of you? My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. In Psalm 42, David writes, "As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Can you say that? My soul thirsts for God. Is that your heart? Jesus, in John 7, verse 37, and he, he dealt with this concept of thirst many times, but here's when he said it publicly, and he says it out loud, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. No one else, nothing else. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What is he talking about? It says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. The Holy Spirit is like a well of water rushing, pouring out, constantly flowing. How can you be thirsty when you're in the middle of the stream, in the middle of the ocean, and yet the enemy wants you to think that God has nothing for you. And you say, I thirst. Oh God, I wouldn't be so thirsty if I had a better job. Oh God, I wouldn't be so thirsty if you would just answer my prayer about this thing or that thing. And you know, the enemy, he doesn't care if you pray like that. Not a problem. And what the enemy is doing with you is he comes to you and he says, here, Don. He says, you're thirsty? Try this. Try this. Take a drink. And I'll try it. And it may satisfy me for a little while, but it's never permanent, is it? And so what he does is he comes along to you and he says, look, if you really want to be happy, what you need to do is go to the next level. And so try this. Get more involved. Get more deeply committed to this activity or, or this thing that makes you happy or this relationship or, or drugs and alcohol or whatever it is. He says, try this. And you try it, but it doesn't satisfy Does for a little while, but doesn't satisfy. And he will keep doing that to you. He'll keep saying, try this, try this, try this, try this, try this. And all the while, if you're part of the people of God and you know Jesus, the answer to your thirst is in you. The Holy Spirit. and completely quench your thirst. And you're going around like you're dying. And he has given you so much and he wants to give you so much more. Himself. If I were to sit you and I together and I was to ask you to describe your your personal prayer time which is the heart of your relationship to God, if I was going to ask you to describe your personal prayer time, what would you tell me? Would you say, it doesn't happen? It doesn't exist, Pastor. I don't, know, I don't know what it's like to sit with God and, um, and to be satisfied. Somebody else may say, well, Pastor, I, I, I do meet with God and I, I pray, but i got to be honest with you and um, I'm just dry spiritually just dry and I go before the Lord and 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 all these other things come to mind and and the problems in my life are squeezing on me and I got all these issues and and I just feel dry and so I and then maybe you would tell me pastor I actually pray and and I intercede for people and and I pray about my needs and I pray about the needs of others and, and I'm thankful. Sometimes I see God answer those prayers, and sometimes, and we think the whole business of praying is about going and trying to get God to give us something and going to get God's gifts. But how many of you would say, Pastor, the way I would describe my time of God is like this. I come to him, and I bring my thirst to him, and he satisfies me he fills me up. And I walk away from that time and I can, I can face hell with a water pistol because he has satisfied my soul. I don't get that anywhere else. No relationship, no activity, no drug, nothing can satisfy me like what happens when I come and I bring my thirst to him. The Holy Spirit lives inside a person. They have a limitless supply from God Himself that will satisfy your thirst. Do you know Him? Have you ever trusted Jesus Christ to take the controls of your life? to forgive you for your sins. He dies on the cross to wash away our sin. And we put so much emphasis on that, and rightly so, because that's the first step to coming into a relationship with God. My sins have got to be forgiven. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But he didn't die just to give you a fire insurance so you don't have to go to hell or a ticket to heaven. He died so that he could come and take up residence in you and change you from the inside out. God was working on Samson. Is he working on you? Is that your experience? Would that be your testimony? I trusted Jesus, but my goodness, I'm not the guy I was or the guy I was when we started this thing. God's been working on me. He's been changing me, and I'm learning more and more. He is the one who quenches my thirst. And, and, and others of us, sometimes we, have, we made that decision years ago. And we're just now beginning to wake up to the fact that there's so much more that God had in mind for us when we trusted Him. That He he really wants to come and be everything for us. That He is sufficient for every need we have. That we can be like Jesus and trust Him fully with every problem we encounter. Everything that we experience where we have need. Have you trusted Him this morning when we stand and sing? If you have never trusted Jesus to forgive you for your sins and to come in and take residence in your life, I want to encourage you to do that today. Dear ones, that's the only reason why this church is here. Is so that people can come to know God and together we can grow in our knowledge of him. Do you know him? And then if you're a brother or sister in Christ, Imagine that, that conversation, you and I sitting down. I just said, how's your prayer life? How's your, your time alone with God? What is your relationship with God like? How does that affect your life? I, what's going on? Uh, are you discovering that he can satisfy you? What would you say? I don't know what we're going to sing, but when we stand and sing, that may just be the cry of your heart. And say, oh God, I want to know. What you talked about when you said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus, I want to drink. I want to drink like that, where your Holy Spirit fills me and overflows me. And you just want to take your, your stance here this morning and just say, that's what I want to do. You can do it sitting, standing, kneeling down front. Matters not, maybe you just want to come tell a pastor say, look, just pray for me. I want him to fill my life. I want to be satisfied in Christ. The book promises it. I want to experience it. Don't be satisfied for less than the best that God has for you.